Welcome to another episode of PhDs. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities from English. And I'm Dr. Liz Wayne, representing engineering. And today is a glorious occasion, a very exciting occasion. I am happy to... I'm happy to make words. It's like I can't make words. I've been sleeping all weekend. And uh, just looking at the ceiling and complaining about how hot it is, even though it's September. But today we have a very important topic to all of us, and we have a very special guest. I'd like to introduce you guys to Dory Castillo. Welcome to the show, Dory. Hi, it's nice to be here. <laughs> it's nice to I see know. you again. I'm excited. I'm excited to speak. Yeah. Um, I met Dory earlier this year at the conference for undergraduate women in physics in January, and she was just a a rock star is a really amazing bright person that was actually in one of the interviews and um you know we sent emails and we said we keep in touch and i am so so happy we did dory why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so i am a little bit of a non-traditional student at over at montclair state university i'm currently um, on a break mm -hmm. from school but i am double majoring in physics mm -hmm. and computer science and minoring in math I am also teaching, I currently teach uh, STEM Ooh. classes throughout the board. I do programming, um, mathematics, physics, engineering, and so far I've done second to mm -hmm. 12th graders, and now I'm going to teach Ooh. some kindergartners, so I'm so excited. I'm going to teach them some geometry. <laughs> oh my god, wait. Uh, <laughs> like, what kind of geometry? Just like this is a circle? Um, I think it's just all the board geometry. Yep. Oh, well, everything. Like, you know, all types of shapes and what shape is the mm. strongest shape. Mm. And so I have some conjuring <laughs> so many fun activities for these imagine. little ones. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, yeah. And over the summer, I did my first uh, intro to real teaching where I had to make, I've been making my own curricula and my lesson plans. And I was even contracted uh, by the school. I mean, due to budget constraints, uh, we unfortunately are only going to review, but I've also been contacted to create new STEM curricula for the program itself, um, which is amazing because I am one of the most, I feel like the most unqualified person to tell a teacher, hey, this is the science mm -hmm. curricula curriculum that you have. This is your lesson plans. This is how you're going to teach science. Well. <laughs> um, but it's a really fun yeah. thing to do. I'm excited about it. I absolutely love very it. exciting. It's amazing. <laughs> you're literally shaping future minds and future curricula. So you're kind of exponentially doing it, not just linearly, you know. Because your courses get to change a well, lot more you know, people besides the ones you were in your classroom. Oh, absolutely. And I can't stress enough that, you know, I when I talk to these kids, like some of them, like some of them really love science. Some of them are only there because of their parents. And they say, you know, well, science is boring. Yeah. And I go, no, 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 no. Like, whoa, someone told you something wrong because science is a lot of fun. And let me tell you why. That's right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I want to try my best to let everyone know that science is fun. Science, science is, is cool. Yours. And science belongs to everyone. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And I want to make sure that there are no misconceptions in science and um, we all have fun doing it. And I want to stress the importance of it from a very early age. Because there's no such thing as, I'm not a science person, or like, I just don't know science, it's not fun, or, you know, I'm not a math person. I want to just make sure that everyone can do whatever they want, <laughs> as long as they put their minds to it. That's amazing. So basically, as you could tell, Dory is herself an awesome student and also doing amazing science outreach stuff mm -hmm. already, you know, and you're still working an undergraduate degree, which is amazing. Um, but... So part of the reason why we brought Doria in today is not just because of the amazing work that she's doing, but she mentioned like misconceptions are something that she feels very passionate about. And I don't know, maybe this is an awkward segue, but Dory contacted us um, right when we were feeling there was a really huge thing that happened in the U.S., which was incredibly devastating and that Liz and I were trying to figure out like, oh, we need to do an episode on this topic. And then it was amazing that Dory reached out to us to say that she was wanted us to cover the, cover this picker topic. Uh, do you want to talk about this story? Sure. So besides loving physics and aspiring to be a physicist, I'm also a DACA recipient. So I have been unlawfully present in the United States since I was one mm -hmm. years old. I was brought here and um, thankfully Obama has given me some deferred action and some lawful status in order for me to continue on my dreams here in the United States. And as we all heard the news in September 5th, you know, it was rescinded. And I wanna just give information as to who we are and what we're actually up to and what it means mm -hmm. to be DACA. Um, so DACA, DACA really is a deferred action. It's actually the fifth deferred action that has been mm -hmm. in place since for the last 20 years. And all deferred action really is, it's a discretionary release. So there's about 11.4 million undocumented aliens here in the U.S. And um, Homeland, the Department of Homeland Security only has resources for to deport 400,000 people. A so year. they don't have that much space to deport. Oh, yeah, a year. So they don't. Yeah, so they don't have that much way to like, hey, well, let's deport these 11 million people. Therefore, there's these deferred action plans that have been put into place in order for us lower priority cases to be put on hold. So deferred action is just pushing it's It's like pushing us back mm -hmm. in the bottom of the barrel, saying that we're low case priorities and there's no need mm -hmm. to deport us because we're not causing such like we're not causing crimes or we're not uh, a national threat or anything like that because Homeland Security does not have the resources to deport us all. So they're just giving us a different case and telling us like, hey, we're gonna just defer your stay and we're gonna just defer this case of yours until further on we decide what we're going right. to do and with you Right, and it's also all. helpful to the, um, to the government or to DHS because if you register, it makes their job easier to find out who you are, right? So it's actually Absolutely. in their so if we register for this deferred action and they don't have to devote resources to finding out who you are and where you are. Absolutely. So it, it helps the, it helps the government um, a lot just in that case. And when they see who we are, they also go, OK, we don't have to worry about them. We can just start worrying on who really is mm -hmm. a national threat. And um, so those who've committed the crimes and done whatever it is they have done to put themselves in that predicament. Um, so then they can go ahead and start importing those pe uh, deporting those people. 
Um, but DACA is absolutely helpful to the U.S. economy. Um, you know, alone, just looking at the numbers alone is absolutely staggering. So if you were to, you know, uh, there's about $2 billion um, that DACA recipients are contributing to like state and local mm -hmm. taxes mm -hmm. alone. And so you think of the number alone, that's $2 billion that they're contributing, just us alone, the 800,000 mm -hmm. people that's that are lot. here. Um, and yeah, and the 11 million people that are actually undocumented, they still pay taxes as well. You know, they're contributing $11.4 billion in state and local taxes. So there's a huge amount of um, people that are here doing that. Um, and while there's only 800,000 DACA recipients, mm -hmm. um, there, there were in 2012 1.3 million uh, children and or young adults who were eligible for DACA. And so if the 1.3 million people would have stepped forward, uh, we would have been contributing an mm -hmm. extra $425 million. Uh, and this is all according to like the... The ITEP, so Institute of Taxation and Economic mm -hmm. Policy. So it comes straight from the government. These numbers come straight so from them. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the requirements to become a DACA recipient? So first thing, if you are deciding to become a DACA recipient, you need, in 2012, you needed $4,600 in order to file. Um, and there was no guarantee whether you would be accepted or not because it's mm -hmm. a case-by-case -case basis. So you file, you file um, and they give you a background check. So you have to pass a background check. Uh, you have to have been born on or after June 16, 1981. You have to have been present in the United States before your 16th birthday. Uh, you have to have no lawful immigration status and you have to be at least 15 years old. You have to have been continuously stayed in the since June fifteenth, two thousand and seven. So, yeah. So um, I think that's around the. I don't know why they picked that time exactly, but you need to you need to show proof that you've been here for consecutively mm -hmm. for months. Okay. So so um, I remember. Oh my god! When I remember when I was applying for DACA, I brought a stack of papers showing like my kindergarten report <laughs> oh. card all the way up until like high school my high school report cards pictures this that you know we had to show so much um and proof and we had to have no gaps mm. either i remember our um i remember my lawyer was like you can't have any gaps there can't you can't have those take those chances um you also have to have graduated from a u.s high school uh, or given your ged or currently in high school be honorarily discharged uh, have no significant misdemeanor offenses or you can't have more than one misdemeanor and you cannot pro pose a threat to the national security. So you need to check all of those before you can be given deferred action. And before, it, like once you're granted that, um, all we're given is uh, employment authorization and it's a temporary employment authorization. It's, it's all temporary. It's only good for two mm -hmm. to three years. Um, so that's, that's all we right. get. Um, so we're not getting anything else. And there's no pathway to citizenship by DACA at all. This is just saying we don't have enough resources. You guys are low tier. You're not really a risk. So let's just do this system, you know, 
and keep like doing this on a turn by turn basis and a case by case basis. Yeah, so um, I remember, I remember that uh, in order for any deferred action to be taken into consideration, it all has to be done case by case. So at any moment, uh, Homeland Security can take away your status, your DACA status. They can all say, hey, we don't think you need it anymore. We don't think you um, deserve this anymore. So they would take it away. Uh, same thing goes for if they don't feel as if you're eligible for this, they'll be like, okay, well, we're not going to accept mm -hmm. you into the program. Mm -hmm. it, it is all case by case. Oh, wow. So it's like on the one hand, like the way that some people talk about DACA, you get this completely misleading uh, representation that like, oh, just anyone can come in. And yet, um, and these people get like so many like free things when exactly the, the opposite is exactly true, that it's an incredibly rigorous system. Um, and also it's not like, there's so many myths that, oh, DACA recipients are taking American jobs or go to get to college for free or get free healthcare. And none of these things are true. Um, I don't even have healthcare. I can't, yeah. you know, I can't really apply for that. I don't, I, I can't do any of that stuff. Even Jeff Sessions said it. He said, um, I think he said something like we're, we're creating this amnesty mm -hmm. program. Amnesty was around, which was a forgiveness program that the United States used to have. And so it granted any illegal um, migrant some, uh, it gave them forgiveness so they can apply for a pathway mm -hmm. to citizenship and they'd forget their lawful, unlawful stay here. But um, this doesn't do that. It just gives you a like two year stay like, hey, we're not going to deport you for two years until you decide to renew. Um, and that's it. There's no pathway. I could be under DACA for about 20 years and I would still have no citizenship. I would still have um, I wouldn't have a lot of things. And going to school is very difficult because everything does come out of pocket. You know, you can get some private scholarships, but it's barely anything. It depends on the university that you go to. It depends how much, you know, they have to offer these certain mm -hmm. students. Yeah. So tell us, if you don't mind, tell us about, I guess, what your life was in education or trying to pursue education before DACA and after DACA. Um, before DACA, I, well, I knew I was undocumented since I was nine years old. My mom told me what it was, and so I started understanding immigration policies. And I, I remember thinking, well, you know, I got nine years until I could like completely graduate high school. This is not going to affect me. So I went like a bulk nine, I would say seven years of just completely ignoring mm -hmm. immigration systems. Um, but as like high school came towards an end, I there's a lot of depression that comes into this because I had to take, you know, a driver's ed mm. class and I had to take, you know, certain other classes and I wasn't, you know, and I couldn't explain to my teachers like, Hey, I, I can't get this. I can't, you know, um, I can't apply for universities. I can't, I didn't think that so many universities took, um, undocumented students. There was no one to help me. My family is all first mm -hmm. generation. So, um, it was really difficult. And, you can't really speak to anyone about it. You know, when you're undocumented and you're um, 16 or 17 years old, you know, even 15 years old, your parents tell you, like, don't tell anybody. You have to keep it quiet because you never know if you tell the wrong person and you can be mm -hmm. oust and then you're sent mm -hmm. to another country. And you're sent to a country that you've never been, you know, perhaps. I don't even speak Spanish that well. Like, I speak, speak it enough. 
uh, to be in my family, but, you know, to get by everyday life is going to take me yeah. a moment, you know, I'm like, hey, slow down with your Spanish, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where um, it, you live your life in fear because you don't know who to tell, you don't know how to tell anyone. And so it was heartbreaking to talk to my teachers and tell them, you know, my teachers would come up to me and say, Dory, um, when are you, um, when are you going to go to, uh, when you're applying to college, let me know so I can write you a letter of recommendation. Um, I was even offered a scholarship to play golf because mm-hmm. I used to play golf in high school and I couldn't take it because you have to be either a resident or oh a U.S. citizen. And mm-hmm. I didn't have that either. So there was so many things that I could have done. And so I kind of spiraled into this depression. And I remember I asked last resort as my guidance counselor and he shrugged. He mm-hmm. didn't know what to do with me. And he just he honestly said, just go to community college because that's all you can afford. Mm. And um, my grades were my grades were good. You know, I think my senior year, I graduated with a 3.9 GPA. I had my AP classes, my honors classes. I played sports, you clubs, all this good stuff, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. to make myself. Successful. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I tried my best to make myself look good for these colleges that in the end they were like, oh, you can't really apply here. And so my parents too, my mom was like, you have to be very careful with who you speak to. And so um, it was really difficult going into school. And um, being first generation as well, you have the sense of uh, having to take care of your family. So I had to stay in the area to take care of my mom and my my family. Uh, Luckily, my older sister was able to kind of push herself through school. And I think it was two years before DACA really came out and um, after I graduated high school and my sister was like, hey, uh, Montclair State will, they're going to charge you in-state tuition now because every other university was charging me out-of-state tuition because I had to apply as an international student. And being charged as an international student is not fun. (laughs) Um, Also, when you can't work legally, you know, you're like, where am I going to come up with all this money? How are you going to apply for an alone? Or alone you know we can all DACA recipients can apply for only private Mm -hmm. loans we that's the only kind of loans we get we get no grants no federal aid nothing we only private loans so um it was really difficult I went to different universities uh like neighboring universities and I remember like they were just like well if you're not a green card holder for over a year you're an international student and you need to have like an x amount of money in the bank before you even do this and same thing goes with Cornell that my sister was up there. She came back a little a little upset because they said you need to have like a large amount of money in the bank before you can. It was like two hundred thousand oh dollars or something like that. What? Yeah, it was a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money. And then my sister's like, oh, yeah, let me just pull this out, you know, from my bank. No Which problem. Is scary because a lot of um, people at Cornell actually so it, could. <laughs> do that you know places like yes. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just a lot of my classmates could do that. Their parents could just like yeah, um, my, the text message. My sister was telling yeah. me about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, as someone who was raised here from a really young age and being told at the end, like, oh, you can't be what you want to be. You know, that that whole theory, the American dream yeah. of like, you work hard, you can be whoever you want to be, um, becomes almost non-existent. Yeah, it becomes non-existent when you start trudging along this path of like, oh, I'm, oh, I have no documentation. Like, you know, 
Um, therefore, I'm not I'm not treated as a person. So you, you go through this weird crisis of like trying to understand being a human being, but not really being one because you don't have yeah, pieces and then of paper. Part of the rationale they're trying to use, um, thinking about some of the, the literature that you know Jeff Sessions has put out, they try to say things like, "We're trying to main. We want immigrants to come in who understand American culture and care and contribute to society." But you know, someone like you, and undoubtedly most of the the DACA recipients, you grew up here, you went to high school here. You went to dances. You you probably dated American, you know, people. So you understand this culture, right? This is what you understand. Abs- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Know, there's Bieber, um, you know? there's a study I think. I mean, he's Canadian, yeah, Canadian yeah. but anyway. On average, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, on average, I think uh, the DACA recipients are were brought to the United States at three years old. You know, it's like, what were we gonna? tell our parents at you know one or three years old like mom no wait what you're doing is illegal or dad what you're doing is not okay you know they only had the best interest like I want to give them a better life we had no idea what we're doing but you know I grew up speaking English I grew up in a an American school system I you know everything I know is American Mm -hmm. pop culture um I know anything I know is inside the United States Uh, otherwise everything else is just because I read you know, the newspaper or sometimes watch TV here and there and be like, I guess I can talk to you about this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not 100 yeah. percent sure. And so this sort of plays um, into like really long histories about respectability, especially for, of course, for um, uh, people of color. And the sort of question of like how how good do you have to be to prove yourself? And the fact that that barrier about what makes you good enough is always a moving target, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think what also really comes, um, so I'm, I'm not American, so I've, like the DACA conversation has been one that I've been following because a lot of my friends have, and I, so I really appreciate Dory breaking it down. But it strikes me as like, the DACA, DACA itself was, it was good to have that instead of nothing, but obviously it was still not great because um, the U.S. basically gets to benefit so much from these amazing young people who are contributing to society but getting very little in return. But it's like the standard is so low that like that is that's the best that exists right now, and that's going to be taken away. Um, and it's so it's sort of sad that like the very thing that you're fighting for should even be better. Like you know why like yes, it's good to have DACA, but why not even something better? But at the moment, you have sort of have to fight for something that's even more basic than that. Yeah, it's it's really strange. As I was reading more into DACA, I remember being grateful for DACA and going, oh, okay, now I can I can work over the table. I don't have to really look over my shoulder. But as I read more, I go, it's a it's one of these humanitarian crises that we're having because it's it's happening everywhere. But you know, we're given the very basic, basic, basic. We're just given the little stamp of we're not going to support you really grateful, for an X right? amount of time. Exactly. And I I am supposed to be really grateful for the very little that they gave me. And, you know, again, I've been stealing jobs and, you know, I'm now an adult. So it's my fault that I've been here. And that's the message that I've taken away from them. And it's like, okay, well, now what am I going to do as an adult because I was brought here? Am I going to be shipped off to Ecuador? And it's like, what am I going to do there? And you've never even been. That's not my home. No. So I was born in the Bahamas. And I came here when I was one. My mom's an Ecuadorian citizen. And so because Bahamas is such a new country, uh, their immigration laws are really strange. Therefore, I was only granted Ecuadorian citizenship through my mom. And um, I actually didn't get Ecuadorian citizenship until I was 
16 years old. So I was actually a citizen of mm-hmm. nothing until I was like 16. So you know? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I would joke around saying I can commit all the crimes <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I wouldn't be documented, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it's like, where are you going to send me? Nowhere, <laughs> you know. It's like, where am I going to be tried? Nowhere, you know. So. Like, there's probably like the, the 80th. 70 meridian or something you know there's like the special fault longitude yeah yeah they're like you can stay here they probably wish they could do that absolutely they'll put me in a raft (laughs) oh yeah i mean it's it's been a big problem for a long time and it's funny because i feel like daca really ties into the big issue that we've had with race Mm -hmm. you know with all the things that have been going on and in a weird sense, I have to say I'm a, I'm a little grateful for this presidency because he managed to uproot all the issues that we've mm-hmm. been having for such a long time. You know, because so you go um, since I was 18, <laughs> huh? <laughs> well, you know, since I was like 18 years old, I've had people asking me whether I speak Ugh. English. Mm-hmm. So people would come up to me and say, hey, do you speak English? I'm like, no. I don't speak English or I have people just speaking to me in Spanish and it's like I don't speak Spanish or just because of my last name I do speak Spanish but I I like to tell them (laughs) I don't Um, or there's people who just come up to me speak to me in a language or my mail AT&T sent me Spanish mail for a really long time I go I've never went up to an AT&T location and spoken Spanish or uh, on the phone just because of my name they, they would be like hold one second, I'll transfer you to someone who speaks Spanish. And I go, no, 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 God, no. You know, I, I please, someone in English, because right. I'm not going to understand. And so it's been such a huge problem. You know, there's that. there, And then DACA comes out, and no one knows what it is. And I've been explaining it for the past, I don't know, five years to everyone I've met. And finally, people are starting to understand what it really means. So and what it really DACA means to be a, an immigrant. In your daily life? So, oh, DACA has helped me achieve this job of just teaching. Um, this absolutely wonderful teaching job. If it wasn't for DACA, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have this. Um, if it wasn't for DACA, I wouldn't be in school. I wouldn't have started school because it's very difficult. And I would have been charged out-of-state tuition mm-hmm. and it would have been almost impossible to pay for school. And um, I got a driver's license, you know, so DACA has been absolutely helpful for me to get around. And again, I'm not fearful and I'm not looking behind my back every single day wondering whether I'm going to be deported and sent away to a country that I'm not even Mm -hmm. familiar with. Those are all pretty reasonable things, you know, that we would all, yeah, it helps me work, you know, and sure there's a few other things I can't do like you know there there are some discrimination cases here and there like I had a tutoring job for a while inside the school and because they were changing the people who used to run the administration or something they were like okay you're a DACA recipient this is really a weird place that you're in so I don't we don't want the new person to deal with this so we're not going to allow you to tutor anymore although I have employment authorization yeah, yeah, it was it was this really strange thing. And I remember going, okay, but, you know, the more I thought about it, I'm like, wait, that's kind of unfair. Like, you know, I have my employment authorization. Right. And It's like if you and, think about a lot of the other, they're like H-1B visas, they're J-1, there are B-1. all sorts of other mm-hmm. essentially work visas that some of them, you know, that end just as soon as you're no longer in school, right? 
you know, this is yeah. essentially well, They actually to have that. a lot more than you we have. You don't have any rights, but you, you yeah. can work here, and that's all it means. Yeah, um, it's been, I, sometimes in the sciences, and I know in physics particularly, I feel like those students have had a lot more help than DACA students yeah. and DACA recipients, the F1 students. And, because, um, you know, I did research in fluid mechanics, and I absolutely love it. My, my professor, he tried his best to see how he can mm-hmm. help me in this situation. And, you know, there's some sponsorships that can happen and this and that. And, but I'm not legible for any of that. And a lot of the things in the sciences are only good for permanent residents, mm-hmm. um, citizens, and or people of, like, certain student statuses. And I don't have any, any of that. So there's a lot of things that are kind of off the books for me. Um, when it comes to trying to apply for certain things in physics. And um, I think it's only recent that certain internships are allowing DACA recipients to um, apply for those internships. Mm-hmm. So this really relates yeah. very well to like the ongoing discussions right now, what people call mar- like margin sci, right? Because it's like, it's not enough that you're an excellent scientist and the work is good, like, but the world won't let you do the science that you want to. Yeah. Yeah, so even now, like, all I want to do is become a physicist. Like, it, that shouldn't be that hard yeah. to ask for, <laughs> you know. Um, that's all I want. And But I have to take these breaks along the way in order for me to collect myself and make sure that everything's being done properly, my paperwork is being done properly. Um, I'm making sure that I still have some kind of status in order for me to continue my dreams. And then I do these pit stops, the pit stops of trying to explain to people why this is important you know explain to people that we need to do more as a society to help each other mm-hmm. you know you, you you have to take these stops along the way in order for you to continue um doing anything or pursuing anything so i was wondering could you talk a little bit um to our listeners about what does it mean when people talk about say like sanctuary cities or sanctuary campuses um and also ice so, so sanctuary cities and sanctuary um, universities, they're giving you this kind of safe haven where they will not be turning um, any undocumented people to any kind of a uh, border patrol uh, authorities. So ICE themselves are the immigration police, as so we like to call them. And so once they catch you, you know, they'll start filing your paperwork so you can be deported. Um, and there's been many times cities and in order for them to kind of fill this quota, because unfortunately, just like cops, people need to fill a quota. And, um, yeah, so they need to collect as many people as they can. And so they want to just deport people. And unfortunately it comes back to certain towns and certain cities that are not as safe for immigrants, any kind of immigrants, whether they be, um, and even, and even African Americans, whether they be legal or not, it's not a safe place. And so they try to best they try their best to like grab as many people to deport. And so they will call certain locations. They'll do raids so they can collect as many deported um, illegal immigrants to deport them. And so sanctuary cities kind of grant a safe haven and say, hey, we're not going to report you to ICE and we're not going to give your paper up to ICE if they were to ask Mm -hmm. for it, because that's what they do is they ask for the paperwork. And um, there have been apparently phone calls um, made to certain universities asking for um, asking for any kind of paperwork to show who's illegal and who's not illegal so they can process them, mm-hmm. which is really scary. 
So these sanctuary cities are just they're just trying their best to not give forth um, information that they don't need to give forth. And I remember with um, uh, the disaster in Houston, on the one hand, people were starting to say like, oh, undocumented people, you should also go for help. But then my understanding was that that was actually rescinded. And apparently they were sort of taking a, a, ICE and other authorities were taking advantage of the fact that undocumented people were coming forward to get any sort of help. And then like, yeah, deporting them. Yeah, so they do really, they have very strange tactics. Like even now that I have DACA, sometimes I still be, feel a little afraid um to go about my like everyday activities so now that it's been rescinded you know i know people that sometimes they smoke pot Mm -hmm. recreationally and it's like i'm not gonna hang out with you guys because you do illegal Mm -hmm. stuff and you know because it's considered illegal um i don't want to be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time because whether i was doing it or not um i could it just depends who i who came up to me and goes oh well you're breaking the law by even just being here Mm -hmm. like you're going to be deported Um, there's been cases, I think recently on NPR, I heard there was a case of ICE staking out a police station and ICE officials were kind of just standing outside and waiting for these um, people to come out and they just catch, um, catch these undocumented immigrants come out of the police station and they sent them out for deportation. Same things go for somebody who was standing at a bus stop, you know, and it also depends on what they call a crime. Um, you can be caught doing any, like somebody was caught stealing next to you. And now because you're in the room, you can also be tried and sent just because, you know, you're present in a location. Um, so it becomes really scary because certain ICE officials are not doing, you know, not taking priority in high cases. Uh, they're just taking anyone that they can. I mean, that's a tough state to live in. And, and I, yeah, you know, um, I believe, Arizona might be one of the toughest ones. Arizona and Texas might be one of the most difficult places to live right now as um, a DACA recipient and as any kind of illegal immigrant. Um, And the person who fought the DACA first, like one of the first people, he was, um, he was, he's from Arizona. Uh, this was in 2013. His name is Chris Kobach. He tried to, he written a law called SB 1070, which um, it's a really strict anti-illegal immigrant law that he managed to pass. And um, what it was is that if you're over 14, you have to register with officials in order for you to be in the wow. system. And if you're over 18, you have to, you have to always carry ID. So even if you're going to go to the grocery store, if you're going to go anywhere, you have to constantly carry ID just in case they can go ahead and stop you at any moment and ask for your papers. I also, yeah. So I just wanted to just add, as someone who works in the 19th century, this is the exact same things that we see like happening in in the time of slavery, of course, like people getting asked to, to see your papers. And at the same time, it, even if they ask you, if having papers are is like the marker of, of respectability, that's also never quite good enough. Those things could still be foiled. Those, that's not quite enough to protect you at the same time. Um, and so it's really grotesque to see these no. logics from a time that the that that the present day U.S. tries to disavow and say, "Oh, we're so much better than at that time." All these things have much older, longer origins and things that um, uh, the U.S. doesn't want to confront in their history. Yeah, you know, um, I remember when I was really young and we're, we're taught from a really young age that you know, 
people came over. Christopher Columbus found this place. Everything's happy. We have these American values. We have this freedom, you know, and our American values are living happily all together. The Indians happily shared with us. And, you know, but we've always had this underlying, we've always been acting the same. You know, we've, we've pushed off the Indians mm -hmm. to the side. We've pushed off Chinese to the side. We've pushed Jewish off to the, the, the Jewish community off to the side, you know. And as the years go on, there's always a new set of people that they're just setting aside and they're not treating as another mm -hmm. human being. And um, this is just another case of that in just modern time. Mm -hmm. So I also wanted to add that... Um, one of the many misconceptions around undocumented immigrants in general is that I think that in the public consciousness, like they just imagine usually Latinx people, but actually like um, a huge majority are actually Asian American, which of course is funny since Asian Americans tend to usually be painted as, you know, the so-called like model minority. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the reality is, um, I was looking up some statistics, something like either one in six or one in seven like Asian Americans are immigrants are undocumented, which sort of goes against that. But also even like, the way that Asian Americans are sold sort of hold up again is like the good ones. A lot of the language, like a lot of the racist language that surrounds um, Latinx immigrants, particularly Mexican ones, having to do with them like stealing labor, being lazy, all those things like that, that was all the same language that used to be used for the Chinese in the 19th century. So we just see that these cycles, as, as Dory put it, of like who's the new scapegoat um, mm -hmm. being put in these new positions. And so that's why I'd especially um, like to say for all of our um, Asian, Asian American listeners that like this is a, an issue that deeply concerns us as well. And that's why we have to like be good allies. Oh, kitty. Sorry. <laughs> He's saying hi. There's a cat. And Dory has a cat and the cat is making a lovely appearance. That's why oh, Don said kitty. <laughs> he loves people. He loves saying hi. So beautiful. Um, He's an American cat, <laughs> born here You're on the U.S. American, soil. American cat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, absolutely. We all just need a scapegoat, and that's been a trend in American history, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, I also read the statistics that the largest uh, DACA recipients, the sixth largest in the group, is um, South mm -hmm. Koreans. So, you know, it there's... They're sixth in line, and so there's a whole bunch of different faces to DACA recipients. There's, you know, people from Ghana. There's people... I was from Bahamas, so technically I'm, you know, I'm from there. It's only my parents who are of Latino descent, you know, and I have now their facial features. But there's people from all around the world that are DACA recipients, and we can't... Just because Mexicans are, I think, they're 73% of the DACA recipients... We can't harbor these kinds of um, emotions towards just Mexicans themselves, saying that they're the only group of DACA recipients or the only group mm -hmm. of illegal immigrants, you know. And we're supposed to be this country that pride ourselves in, in, like, migration. I think the United States holds 20% of the migrant pop mm -hmm. uh, population, you know, um, including the migrants from around the world that come to the United States. Uh, it's about... Um, 40 billion people or so and you know adding the children that have been born to the US from like migrants it's about 80 billion people that's a quarter of the population of the US population oh, that are immigrants and we don't take yeah 80 billion people uh, 80 million people yeah <laughs> so it's you know it's a quarter of the population that are migrants but 
we feel so marginalized and it's ridiculous because it's a huge portion of this country and we're supposed to be this melting pot, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we're not treated as such. And we're given very basic rights, although we've been present in this in this country for a very, yeah. very long time. Do you ever feel, this is a leading question, do you ever feel as if this question of um, should DACA recipients exist have more to do, have like it's deeper than just whether you should be able to work here or not. Like it feels like there's another cause and this is just being wrapped into it. Well, yes, we should be considered as Americans. You know, it's it's not rather we should just be seen as another immigrant population because we do not feel that way. You know, um, yes, I do know about certain Latin American culture, but that's not my culture. You know, I'm, I am American. You know, I, I do stand with some other Latino things out there, but um, by by being granted DACA, we are seen as somewhat American and we just want everyone to know that we are mm-hmm. Americans. You know, this is my only home. I've been here as long as anybody else, you know, and I've been raised with the same values. And that's, DACA should definitely lead up to something more than just being given a deferral, you know, just being the deferral that it is. So maybe that's a good uh, segue to talk about what's currently happening in DACA. So it was rescinded about two weeks ago. It was rescinded, yes, just about two but weeks there ago. was this kind of six-month time frame to, uh, I guess, reimagine what can happen. Yeah, so what they did is that they gave a six-month window, well, one month to renew. Um, and I just recently read that if somebody's uh, DACA is expiring between September 5th and March 5th, they need to file now for renewal and they only have until October 5th mm-hmm. to renew. And the application also went up this year. So it's $495 mm-hmm. to renew the DACA, um, their DACA status. And they also have, uh, Congress has a six month uh, window in order to create some kind of legislation uh, in order for DACA to con- either continue or to do something more with us which Congress definitely has the power to pass stronger legislation to give us uh, some kind of pathway to citizenship, which should have happened a while ago. Um, again, DACA is only here because, because there was a few people who sat in and did a hunger strike over at the White House, and it's the only reason DACA mm-hmm. exists. You know, so we need to do more in order for DACA to continue. Um, and we need to speak up in order for, for Congress to do more with us, essentially. So this is a really monumental time right now because it, it gets make or break. So there could either, at the best outcome, there could be an opportunity to have a law rather than like an executive order. And there could be something that gives you a pathway, right, to something more permanent Absolutely. On the other hand, in six months, this could be completely dissolved, and now they've got mm-hmm. all your information, and they're going to come find you. And they can also start their um, the deportation proceedings in six months if they they felt the need to. Worst case scenario. So then that means in six months, you know, although DACA, I have my employment authorization for another two years. Um, 
whether I'm stopped by the wrong person having a bad day, I can still be proceeded to be deported. I no longer have a safe, I don't have the deferral anymore. God. Um, I only have the employment authorization for the next six months. I'm not saved. I'm not under protection after the six months are over. The emotional toll of this must be so heavy. Yeah. Like just not knowing that you can't even really plan really for your, your future because you don't know what's going to happen. And yeah. Yeah, it becomes very complicated, you know, because you start looking over your shoulder again and we're all out now, you know, we, we, there's 800,000 of us that are out. We can't, we can't just live in the shadows again, you know, looking over our shoulders, not talking Mm -hmm. to the right people. You know, a lot of us have made our lives. A lot of us, you know, there's people who have children, property, um, they have great jobs and it's like, what are we going to do now? What am I no longer going to be able to do what I was doing, living a regular person's life? Um, so it, it's really scary. It, I have to say it is scary to, to think that in six months they can start, you know, removal proceedings, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it, it brings so much fear out of everyone. Um, who has, you know, DACA. And even when it came out, they, we were all unsure about it. There was people who were skeptical and were like, do not apply for DACA because you have, you know, you're going to be documented. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. going back. The government's going to know who you are and Mm -hmm. where you are. So it's finally come to that point where they know who I am and And where I am. When did you decide to do DACA? I'm I'm assuming you had a lot of conversations with your family, with friends, and you really thought about it and I wonder what was it that really made you decide it's worth this push worth the documentation and the risk I wanted I wanted to go to school that's that's really all I've always just wanted to go to school Mm -hmm. that's all I wanted that's you know that's all I want to do and I I I fell in love with physics I absolutely love it and that's all I I really do want to do and um that's the only opportunity that I have to, you know, to create this world that I always wanted to live in. And DACA has allowed me to pursue better jobs and jobs related to the sciences and pursue a passion of mine. And I said, you know, with DACA, I might be able to go to school now. And I was, I was able to, you know, start going to school. If it weren't for DACA, I I'm unsure where I would be right now. So if you, if the best happened, what would you, your ideal dream be in terms of, like, what would you work on as a physicist? Um, you mentioned that you're really, um, you really love fluid mechanics, yeah. but I think you also mentioned mechanical, like, in the best possible world, what type of physicist will Dory be in a few years? <laughs> Definitely a fluid dynam- dynamicist. Um, <laughs> as for what area in fluid dynamics, I'm not a hundred percent sure just because I still have to figure out whether I'm an experimentalist mm. or a theorist. Yeah. I, I would most likely say I'm a theorist <laughs> because I'm so clumsy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I wouldn't trust myself. And, um, unfortunately I wouldn't trust myself too much with expensive mm. equipment. <laughs> I get it. It's like sometimes you choose um, your path and other times the path chooses us because it's like, well... I can't, that doesn't work. Like process of elimination, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing left. Yeah. But before I, yeah, before I become a, uh, because my, my dream retirement job is to become mm-hmm. a professor. Um, I do hope to uh, become almost like the next Bill Nye, the science mm-hmm. guy. That's honestly <laughs> my next dream, just to tell everyone, show everyone that mm-hmm. science is awesome. 
and you know really advocate for the sciences that you know we so desperately need because Although I'm stealing the jobs, there's not many of us who pursue jobs in STEM, and there's a really low yeah. count there. You're actually and um, an I definitely want to. Absolutely, there's enough space. Like, hey, like you, you want a job? There's a there's mm-hmm. a job here. <laughs> you know, I'm the most unqualified teacher, and I'm teaching science classes. I'm the only non-teacher mm-hmm. teaching science. Um, so there's there's room here if somebody wants it. Um, we just have to find those people. Um, but that's my ideal job is just letting everyone know that science is awesome and, <laughs> and that we need to, uh, we need to work at being better to communicate this. Yeah. Communicating Slightly science and stuff. Slightly off the then, but on the science communication, um, what was your experience like with the solar eclipse? Oh my god, it was beautiful. Oh, it was so beautiful. You know, it's so funny. I like I moved out um for a bit and my roommates, I didn't really know the roommates too much and I had, you know, I was telling them like, "Oh, there's a solar eclipse. Like, mm-hmm. here, take my glasses so you can see it." Um and then it hit me how much science education needs to be changed because I I gave I gave one of the roommates uh the glasses and she she looks at it and she goes, "Wow, that looks so cool." And then you know, then she goes on and saying she thought that the black thing was the sun. And she's an older woman now. And so I said, um, okay, we, we need to work on the science education. Yeah. The black thing is not the sun. Yeah. um... No, no, no. I, I didn't know how to, you know, tell her that it would be in a complete apocalypse if that was the case. Yeah, <laughs> but it was absolutely beautiful. I I, I thought it was it. the perfect science demonstration because oh. everyone was talking about it. You know, people were. It just it always gets me how people trusted science in that moment. You know, people were saying things like, "Oh, totality is going to happen at approximately two forty three p.m. and last for fifteen minutes," and we're and then we're in the area of ninety four percent totality. And I'm like, you're just pulling out these numbers. But if it were and also, it's like, content. now you want to trust yeah. science, but not when it comes to, like, well, medicine. when I feel petty, yes. There's a yeah. part of me that's like, you believe science is so much, and you believe our models so much that you trust when the totality is going to happen, you would travel hours for that. But you don't believe our models about climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the same math. Oh, but, but beyond that, just understand that people in any other context, they would feel this aversion towards numbers. And an aversion towards, like, the idea of knowing something in that detail. But it's the same thing, you know? It's the same principle. Oh, but somehow, yeah. when it was a solar eclipse, it was, you know... Everyone trusted it. Yeah, yeah. Your it's absolutely mon- only mind-boggling. I've... for 15 minutes? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was thinking that I've been, I've been running up that, like, you know... Not just about DACA, it's just like, you know, when I'm reading about the sheer numbers alone about DACA mm-hmm. recipients and about this and that and, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, when will we all feel comfortable in the numbers? Mm-hmm. Like, when are we going to, you know, put certain feelings beside and go, let me look at these numbers, you know, doesn't matter what we believe in, doesn't matter any kind of like, uh, you know, our moral values, 
sometimes need to be set aside in order to stare at these numbers and go like, okay, there's something really happening here. You know, it's, it's not just um, some anomaly, it's an actual pattern. And what can we do about these patterns? You know, and that's something that I really want to help you know, accomplish is that people need to start looking at these numbers and saying, hey, there's just like they trusted the solar eclipse, they should learn how to gather these numbers and go, there's something strange happening here, <laughs> you know, or there's something fun happening, but we do need to put uh, more trust in these things. Um, absolutely. I, I felt the same way. I, um, I know you're capable now. Let's not shrink back from this. I know you can do it. You just showed me. It's kind of the same <laughs> thing. Um, like whenever I, uh, talk to teenagers or like little like just kids you know like high pre like junior high to high school age and they kind of um you know like they're too cool to care but but I see them yeah you know do things in a classroom like in terms of like socialization or like trying to convince a teacher to give them something they really want or try and be disinterested like all these sly kind of tactics that I'm like you have the ability to strategize and to think about things and to understand mm-hmm. relationships because this is nothing but you know you want this guy to like you or, or you want this girl to like you you realize they're liking someone else like you do these things like these are things you're picking up on your environment you're analyzing them and you're changing your behavior and these are things that scientists do so I know you absolutely can't. I was I was <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I was teaching this class to high school students. Um, it was like seventh or twelfth. It was big data, and we were talking about Instagram. And there's this actual science to Instagram. It's like, oh, if I want somebody mm-hmm. to see my post, so I'm not gonna, you know, you're not gonna post your Instagram picture at like, I don't know, at mm-hmm. 10 a.m. on a Wednesday because probably no one's gonna see it. So there's these peak hours in which you would post a picture mm-hmm. so that people can see it. And it's like these teenagers know about these peak hours like, oh, I would get more likes if it's on a mm-hmm. Saturday evening or it's more likes if I and I'm like, look, you're doing science. Yeah. Like, <laughs> This is all we do. And anyone who doesn't understand numbers or doesn't understand anything, it's like you're doing it. You know, you're you're posting these pictures on Instagram. I know, you know, yeah. <laughs> when you're going to get the yeah. most likes, you know, and just that alone, just trying to explain that to them. I know. Definitely. I, 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 uh, I enjoy, like, making people see themselves. <laughs> like, you can do this. Don't give me that. Don't give me that. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably how you know you're a educator. Yeah, that's why I really love teaching is because the kids really do keep me on my toes. Um, because, like, just talking to them, like, everything excites them. And you have to keep them interested as well. So when you come up with these experiments, although we think they're, they're kind of silly, you know, they're exciting. Like, you know, with my little ones, um, we built, uh, like, the most efficient paper airplanes. Boy, were these guys going, like, AWOL about these paper. And we're just folding paper. And we're talking about aerodynamics, but we're folding paper. And they're absolutely loving it. You know, or just with like flour and and salt and some starch and, you know, we're creating clay and they're just like, why is this happening? Why does salt do this? Oh, you know, and they go, they go crazy. You're just seeing things stick mm. to each other. And like the older kids, the high school kids, I was, you know, I put a ball in a cup, I blew on it and I showed them Bernoulli's mm. principle and go explain like, you know, if you blow straight down, it's going to go up, you know, it, it like blows their <laughs> mind away. <laughs> or like when you blow down on a piece of paper, it'll go up, 
you know, because you're having fun with science. And it, it still blows, while we might think it is mundane, the very small things like that are still very exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, the kids definitely do keep me in check with that and go, you know what, everything's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Life is beautiful. And this is why I love science, because it just teaches me that the smallest things are beautiful. <laughs> I'm just floored by your journey and I'm so happy that I know you and look forward to supporting you in any way we can. Thank you so much. This again was the PhD of podcast. I'm Dr. Liz Wayne. I'm Dr. Zainyao. We hope that you follow us, um, continue following the podcast episodes. You can find them on SoundCloud, iTunes, and any other place that has podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter under the hashtag, not the hashtag, but the PhD List Podcast um, handle. And 